We are starting, though, talking about a story that we discussed on the show, and we have talked about similar stories in the past, and that is airlines either damaging or losing wheelchairs, devices that are absolutely necessary for people who rely on them for mobility. And joining us is Stephanie Cadu, Canada's first chief accessibility officer. Stephanie, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Uh, People will know your name and remember your name from being a politician here in BC. Uh, Before we talk about the the specifics of this, uh, I'm curious, you are the first person to have this role. How are things going in the new role? Things are going well, thanks. It's uh, it's a big new job, and because it's all new, um, we are starting from scratch, and and, uh, the the federal public sector is getting to know us, but uh, but it's going well. I'm I'm very I'm very excited about the opportunity for change ahead. Interesting. And what what is your mandate, or or what kind of are you focusing on as sure. you do get things underway? Well, my role is quite simple. I am an independent. Uh, special advisor to the minister responsible for the Accessible Canada Act. I'm there to monitor um, how things are going in terms of implementation of the act and uh, report to the minister uh, about what I see, uh, positives, um, things that might be uh, needing flagging, uh, and, and ultimately to work inside the federal government as a champion and a challenger for the work ahead to make sure that people don't think that this is something they just put on the side of their desk or do it once and tick it off, but it's an ongoing process and, and I'm there to, to help them to help them implement the act. And so when you see stories uh, like mm-hmm. this latest one, it's another case of somebody getting on an airplane, having their wheelchair with them. Uh, in this case, it was mm-hmm. uh, a family. They were going to Chile, then going on a cruise. And they talked to Global News and they talked about the fact they, they weren't worried about it because they brought the custom-built wheelchair. It was right there. It was at the gate, ready to get on that plane with them. It didn't show up. It didn't make it on the plane. What goes through your mind when you hear about another story about we, we've had the stories of, of damaged wheelchairs in the mm-hmm. past, damaged or in this case mm-hmm. like this, uh, not arriving? Look, it's not a new issue, unfortunately. Um, every time I get on a plane uh, and I have to leave my wheelchair at the at the door, I I am stressed out thinking about the fact that it might not get to the other end with me in, in one piece. And that it is a worry for every traveler I know who has a disability. Um, it's, it's happened far too often. It is happening far too often uh, for far too long. And, uh, you know, it can endanger a person's health, result in pain or injury. Um, so the need for change here is really urgent. We were talking about this as well with a disability advocate yesterday, uh, Mayan uh, mm-hmm. Ziv, who was actually on the show uh, a while back because she was going to a conference in Tel Aviv and her wheelchair showed up, but it was so damaged she wasn't able to use it. It was inoperable. And she, she yeah. talked about the fact it's taken forever to get the parts and to fix it. Uh, she mentioned, though, that while they keep numbers and they keep stats on this in the United States on the numbers mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to damaged wheelchairs or lost wheelchairs uh, with the airlines they keep that information and we don't keep that information in Canada would, would that at least make a difference if we started doing that well I think I think data is always important and uh, it's true we don't have that specific data in Canada so the Canadian Transportation Agency regulates air travel and I've had that conversation with them about the need for better data um, and and we'll be watching uh, to see 
that that data as it emerges to see how then that inf- that informs you know policy and change going forward. The um, it's it's a challenge, and and you know Mayan's example is is a, you know a very brutal one, um, but good intentions uh, and after the fact reparations are never uh, were never enough. We actually have to get to the root of the problem and prevent it from happening in the first place. And like you said, whenever you travel, you are worried on what's going to happen when you arrive at your destination. Mm-hmm. And, and like you said, anybody that travels with a wheelchair or a mobility device has those mm-hmm. same those same concerns. It, what do you think? Is there something that could change in that? And Mayan mentioned this as well, that we need to stop. If, if the perception is a wheelchair is the same as luggage, that too needs to stop because it's not. Mm-hmm. Is there a way that we could or that airlines, travel companies could even categorize them differently? There's probably a lot of things. And, and what I can say is I have been encouraged um, by the level of, and commitment of uh, the industry as a whole um, to change. The National Research Council and the CTA, um, Transport Canada, are committed, I believe. Uh, they're conducting research and they're in agreement about the need for change. Um, the Accessible Canada Act uh, mandates now that the airlines will put forward accessibility plans that explain how they're going to remove barriers for people with disabilities. So we, we are, I think, there. It's time for that concerted action and collaboration. Um, the, the reality is it is a complex problem. Um, it involves not only the airlines, but the airports, uh, the airplanes themselves. Um, so solutions have to be implemented by individual carriers, definitely. And that's largely a customer service problem for them that they need to they need to get on um but it's also every aspect of that experience it's uh, the check-in process it's it's engaging with people with disabilities appropriately it's handling the equipment appropriately and the various different touch points for the equipment during that process so it's complex and i appreciate that but for the individual <laughs> it is essential that they get this right it isn't okay that we keep seeing these problems, uh, and so I am, I am hopeful um, that we're moving in the right direction. The, the The challenge now is to ensure that it happens quickly. Are, do people? Do you think then are, are there people that that just don't travel or? or don't travel nearly as much as perhaps they would because of those fears and the, the fear that if something happens, if, if this wheelchair disappears or if it's damaged, mm-hmm. that's going to be life-changing. Absolutely. There are people who've had experiences that um, have now made, you know, and now they've made their decision that they're not going to do that anymore. And that's not a good place to be, right? People with disabilities should be able to travel just the same as everyone else. And yes, there are some, some complicating factors to that for them, People with disabilities will tell you nobody knows that better than than, than they themselves as they deal with these challenges every day. But, um, you know, I think the reality is now, Jill, the issue has reached a point where it's consistently making news. Um, and that's good because it should be news. It should shock us when this happens. Um, but it, the issue has been urgent for a long time. Now is the time for action. Uh, it's time now to not not just hear the airlines and and the airports and, and frankly, other transportation carriers as well, buses, trains, tell us that they tell us that they care. Uh, we need to see it. 
And just one other point, you mentioned the, the carriers and, and that it does come down to customer service. And when you think of that and, and see these stories, it shouldn't be something that requires legislation. But where do you think that the change needs to come from or where do we need to see the action? Is it from a government level or from the, the CTA or is it the carriers and the bus companies and, you know, and the businesses themselves? Yeah, it's all of it, actually. You know, as I said, there's a lot of organizations uh, through the course of the travel, the airports, the airport staff, the airlines, the baggage handlers, the aircraft uh, manufacturers and mobility equipment manufacturers, the folks making the making the wheelchairs in the first place. It, they all need to come together. Um, and there's going to solutions are going to require collaboration across the network. And some of them are going to take time. Some of them are farther out down the line. But certainly, I think the most immediate thing is for the airlines and the, and the airport, anyone who's, who's coming face-to-face uh, with that traveler, they really, need, they really need to focus in on training for their staff and make sure that that customer service experience uh, is, is good for the person, regardless of their disability. Uh, from the time they, they go online to, to book their ticket to the time they return uh, from a successful trip. All right. Uh, Stephanie Cadu, thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about this today. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for being with us. Well, you might remember there was a lot of discussion about bringing in a $10 fee that for freedom of information requests in this province. Well, a preliminary review of the application fee shows a lack of criteria among the public bodies for not charging or for refunding the fee when fairness warrants. It found some mixed findings about the initial impact on the applicants, as well as some limited payment options. Well, to talk more about that and what else, was found in this review. We are joined by Michael McAvoy, BC's Information and Privacy Commissioner. Thank you so much for being with us. Of course, and good afternoon, Jill. Good afternoon to you as well. Uh, what else was found, or can you talk a bit about the findings so far uh, one, now that this $10 fee is in place? Well, as you indicated, uh, it, this is an early look at the findings. It's six months following the imposition of this $10 fee, and I would describe it as the price that any citizen has to pay uh, anytime they just want to enter the door uh, to gain access to information. So it might be the case that no information exists at all. Uh, the $10 non-refundable fee uh, is charged in any case. So we wanted to see if it was having any impact at this early stage on a citizen's access to information. And as you indicated, uh, there were some mixed findings. Uh, individuals, uh, the number of applications actually went up in the period uh, following the fee. Not quite sure why that is. Perhaps has something to do with people's interest in issues around health care in particular, how governments have handled the COVID issue. Um, two areas, I think, emerged, I think, as, uh, as at least at this point, a point of concern, which would be the applications being made by political parties who hold our governments to account, and also the media. On the political parties, it was not, they clearly were making less applications. It wasn't clear precisely why there were, there were other complicating factors. But on the media side of things, and the media does an uh, p- important part of our democratic society to help hold governments to account and to inform us all as citizens, those applications uh, for uh, information went down after the fee was put in place. Uh, media made submissions to us telling us it was uh, opposed to barrier. And, um, the evidence seems to bear that out at this early stage. So I think it's important that we keep a very watchful eye on that uh, to make sure that we have a, 
a system in place that ensures uh, uh, free and full access to information. Uh, keeping in mind, throughout this whole process, we're talking here about essentially information that's the public's information and uh, their, their right to access it to, to inform themselves about you know, how government makes decisions about all of us. Well, and you kind of took the words right out of my mouth to remembering that we already own this information, don't we? That it does belong to the public, but now there's this fee that's capped on to trying to access it. That's right. Now, the Act has always had in place some kinds of fees that are very strictly regulated. So if a fee is, or sorry, if if a request is a very large one that involves, say, more than three hours of time by, by, say, a school district or a public body, those bodies can charge a set amount for searches and creation of those kinds of records, but most applications do not involve that kind of a, a thing. And um, and and so uh, this is just an additional fee that the government has thrown on. It's allowed public bodies to charge, and in our view, uh, it is not a positive thing for. Uh, for our access to information system. Right, and, ju- and that's an interesting point, or I think an important point as well, that all along, even when the $10 fee wasn't there and anybody can make an, a freedom of information request, like you said, we're not expecting that people do this work and not be compensated if it is a large task and there's a lot of work involved. And that money has been paid and always has been paid, but it's this initial fee, like you said, that could now be paid and you don't get anything in return. Well, that's right. And, and part of what we're saying to government and all public bodies, uh, we, we're encouraging it not to charge a fee, and the majority of public bodies in this province don't. But if you're going to do it, put in place a fairness policy. Uh, it, there may be $10 may not seem like a lot to some people, but for others without a lot of means, $10 could be a lot of money. Uh, and so uh, you need to put in place policies that allow for not charging a fee in certain in certain instances or refunding the fee where it's fair to do so. If somebody comes to a ministry and it turns out they've gone to the wrong place, they should have gone to the federal government, uh, it's not fair that the government would hang on to your money. Sorry, it's not here, but we're going to keep your $10. I think fairness dictates that public bodies put in place a policy, a process that would allow for the refunding of fees or not charging them at all in certain instances. And we didn't find it. Certainly with the provincial government, they've got no policy like that in place, and we think they they need to do that. Uh, Yeah, you would think something as simple as as a refund for uh, you're not getting the service. You would expect that you should at least be able to get your money back. Uh, I found it interesting as well that that the report, again, reminds us that, that public bodies, while they can charge this fee, they're not required to. So, I mean, it would be nice, wouldn't it, to see more bodies that that just didn't choose to do that? Yeah, I totally agree. And and what we did is a survey right across the province of uh, those public bodies that tend to handle a lot of access requests just to see where they were at. We did over 100 public bodies. What we found was a a quarter of them, about 25%, were now charging the $10 fee. A quarter were thinking about it, (laughs) and half of them were not and didn't intend to. So um, Our view, the view of our office, and I think those in civil society and other places that access records, uh, we would encourage 
those bodies not charging a fee to continue along in that policy. We think that's a good public policy and, and serves the public uh, properly. Do you think there is room for, uh, well, other improvement, I guess, uh, in addition to what you've uh, lined out here or outlined here or what's been found in this preliminary review? I mean, if if the idea behind this is, and I'm not 100% sure it is, but if the idea to bring this in was to stop, say, frivolous requests or to stop what was perceived as abuse of the system, what about things like you get a certain number with no fee uh, until, and then maybe after you go over a certain number, there is some fee charged, but again, still having a, a refund policy and having uh, those policies in place. Uh, is there room there, do you think, for any other kind of tweaking of it? Well, the, the interesting thing, and that's a very good question, the, the interesting thing about uh, the way the system works now is if people make frivolous requests or requests that are uh, clearly motivated by uh, uh, purposes that are intending to abuse the system, and we do run across those, they're not very often, but it does happen. Um, the system now allows me to say to a public body, you don't have to answer that uh, request because it is frivolous, because it is vexatious. And we get uh, applications from public bodies from time to time uh, asking that they not to be required to answer. And uh, that happens. So the system now has built into it uh, those kinds of protections. Uh, I know there are points at which public bodies get frustrated. They, they think uh, perhaps somebody's asking one too many questions and all that. And And I get that. But uh, the reality is that, uh, you know, they're there to serve the public. And unless the system is being abused, uh, questions need to be answered and records need to be provided to uh, whether it's a media outlet or an individual or a political organization. And do you think the rules are, are clear enough as well on the other side of that when somebody's looking for information and it's not uncommon to be met with a sorry, you're going to, or maybe not a sorry, but the, the response being you're going to have to file a freedom of information request for that. When in some cases it does seem like the information is there and again, it's our information. Why not just release it? Uh, that's exactly right. And one of the things that we've encouraged and I've encouraged in my time as commissioner of public bodies to do is proactively release information, especially information that's uh, frequently asked by, by citizens and individuals and media, uh, uh, expenses that, uh, that public representatives uh, undertake and th- those kinds of things. The government, the provincial government, has gone some way to proactively releasing some of those records, and that's positive. Other public bodies have as well. But more needs to be done because uh, why should I as a citizen have to you know, make that request time and again for something Uh, when it's information really that should be out there. We have this wonderful technology, these web pages that things can be posted to. And what it does do at the end of the day is it it really uh, minimizes the amount of time uh, somebody, public official has to answer questions because it's up there in a website. Right, exactly. Uh, Michael, one other question, just again about the fact that I, I find those numbers very interesting. The, the quarter of the agencies charging the fee, a quarter thinking about it, half uh, not. Is there a place where people know that if, if you are somebody that's making a freedom of information request or you're looking for information, is it clear to the public where you're going to have to pay and where you're not? Well, that again, a very good question. That's one of the things we looked at and we found that in some instances there was no warning to the person applying for information that a fee was being charged and obviously that is not fair and that is not right and it wasn't until sometime after the fact that an individual found out that they even had to pay you know in the meantime the process grinds to a halt well that's not right all public bodies who are going to charge this need to be absolutely clear and upfront on their web pages 
on a form that an individual might have to fill out to request records, uh, and and where the fee may not have been paid, perhaps in in error, the public body needs to forthwith get back to the individual to say, hey, we're charging a fee, and until you pay the fee, you know, we're not, not going to uh, go through the processing. Um, but we did find a number of instances where that was not happening, and so public bodies have to make sure if you're going to ch- don't charge the fee, but if you're going to uh, make sure you've got a proper process in place for notification. All right. Interesting findings in this preliminary review. Michael McAvoy, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate your time. You're welcome, Jill. are talking a little bit about space, about domestic rocket launches, and what we heard earlier today from the Transport Minister saying that Canada has received requests from Canadian and international companies to facilitate a space launch. Canada has been receiving requests not only from domestic Canadian companies, but from companies from around the world, from South Korea, from Germany, from the Netherlands, from Italy, and others who understand that not only Canada has the geography, but also the talent and the ecosystem. Uh, But we didn't have this framework that we announced today. So this, we know that there's an appetite domestically and internationally to launch from Canada. And today's announcement is a strong signal uh, to invite those who are interested to come on in and and take advantage of the, uh, the advantages that Canada has. That was Transport Minister Omar Agalbra speaking earlier today. Well, let's talk more about this and what this might look like. And joining us to do that is Azam Shagagi, president of the Space Tourism Society in Canada. Azam, great to have you back on the show. Uh, Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's such an interesting idea, I think, one we don't talk about too, too much, but this idea, a multi-year plan, the idea to support privately built rocket launches in this country, uh, developing really uh, more space-based services. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I actually think that this is an overdue um, uh, discussion that we've uh, we've supposed to have. Obviously, um, I mean, Canada has been involved with space industry for since like 1980s, right? We've had astronauts, more than nine Canadian astronauts on International Space Station, and we had Canada Arm um, in uh, on the International Space Station, which is a kind of like a Canadian brand and uh, our uh, kind of like pride. Uh, but this is like too late, uh, in my view, because uh, I mean, I studied at NASA Ames back in 2009, and so many Canadians were also studying. But the problem was that Canada does not support or does support, actually, but we don't have the infrastructure and the regulatory environment. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's why SpaceX has been very successful, because the management and the bureaucracy has been caught. So it's a little bit concerning to me if the government is going to be involved. Obviously, there's going to be. Uh, different departments involved. The government of Canada is going to be overseeing the regulatory and also Transport Canada. And then they're going to bring different departments to to make sure that there's safety um, and also security, um, transportation, environmentally friendly. So that would be also, I, I believe, in my view, delaying the process. And uh, there's been so many Canadian scientists, researchers that have been actually brain drain from Canada and they've been studying or working at NASA or even in uh, ESA, um, my friends, my classmates. Um, so I, I hope 
that the government of Canada would actually cut the bureaucracy and uh, kind of like the middle management and just cut uh, and cut that and go to the point uh, which would be faster for us because we've been actually missed in this race. China is all China right now is on the moon and the south of the moon digging. Um, so this is the and even like India has been um, having few launches, not even Canada yet. So back in 2010, I remember that even there was actually a location in Vancouver that was being uh, offered as the space launch. So hopefully we'll, uh, we'll see how the government is uh, kind of like regulating and offering the, uh, this kind of like program. Right, because one of the other quotes from the transport minister, uh, he said that they, they want to put the message out there that Canada intends on being a leader in the field of space. But do you think that's even possible at this point, if, if like you're saying, they're so far behind? Uh, well, we have we are behind, but we have experts and scientists and researchers, and hopefully those guys can come back and uh, actually reestablish their companies in Canada. So I, I would actually be hoping that if, if we want to reclaim or if we want to claim even to say that we are the first, so then we need to actually bring, we need to um, uh, attract the talent and the skills uh, that it requires with the space industry. Um, a lot of people, a lot of students in the engineering field, in astronomy and uh, space engineering in Canada, they have to actually go to U.S and uh, work in Silicon Valley for the startups that are launching um, payloads or they're doing um, uh, communication um, and anything um, regarding IoT. Um, So we don't have that capability. Only two companies right now in Canada actually does that, Telsat and uh, and MDA, and there's kind of like a limit for hiring these experts, right? So hopefully we can... Uh, we can create that. And, you know, another boom uh, that is actually the reason that the boom is happening in the space industry and the commercialization is because NASA is commercializing their lower orbit. It means that the space economy is getting bigger and bigger. So hopefully the competition is actually um, getting bigger. And, uh, and now everybody is getting interested. So that kind of like sky is the limit is not that perspective anymore. Even the sky is not going to be the limit. So hopefully we're going to see so many Canadians uh, that are in, for example, like university, they're going to be applying for internships and they're not going to go away from Canada. They're going to stay and they're going to build their companies. Hopefully we're going to be establishing a better tax reform uh, for the entrepreneurs and especially in this sector. We also need to protect um, the, the skill sets and and the technology, something similar to ITAR, right? Uh, that's that's been helping US a lot in that regard. So um, we also need to do this. Um, I know that a lot of different countries around the world are interested to come to Canada. I talk to these ecosystem startups all the time. They're really interested, but they're complaining about the regulatory environment. So hopefully we're not going to build another uh, regulatory um, bottleneck for us uh, in this sector because this sector really requires innovation and without innovation we cannot go to the moon we cannot go to the mars and we cannot even compete in this sector and interesting when you mentioned that too because uh, I, hard to say government without more regulation or, or more of a regulatory body but how much of it do you think is that when you're talking about nasa a commercializing part of their operations and private companies how much of it do you think is going to be that and focusing on that part of it 
Uh, for NASA, do you mean? Just in general, the fact that the kind of the, the, the private sector and the, the commercializing of space travel, that that potentially mm-hmm. could be more of the future. Uh, yes, because there's there's so much of uh, skill set out there that they can contribute, for example. Um, but NASA, uh, it's very difficult to work at NASA if you're not an American citizen, right? And also there's uh, requirements, ITAR, security, uh, clearance, uh, like background check and everything. But if NASA is providing and selling this kind of like lower orbit to to the private sector, we're going to eliminate this regulatory body immediately, right? So it's going to open the innovation. It's going to open the space for, for the companies uh, from India, from China, from Russia, from everywhere in the world, because in the space, there's no border. Um, space is there is international treaties, the United Nations uh, Outer Space Treaty. So this, this space is for everyone. Um, um, so we're going to eliminate that actually kind of like regulatory body. This is a massive, massive uh, leap towards innovation, uh, towards uh, achieving what we actually have been missing uh, all these years. You know, there's like so much battle in this. And and NASA realized that finally they have to give that up because they cannot manage everything. Right. And um, and another reason that SpaceX is very successful and U.S. is very successful in leading in this sector is because NASA shifted and transported all the uh, launches to SpaceX. The managerial level was actually the problem. The regulatory level was the problem because this. SpaceX and the private sector can do it better, faster. They have money, but NASA is very kind of like they, they, they're under, obviously, a telescope that uh, they're under a lot of scrutiny because it's taxpayers' money. But with the private sector, there's no risk. The investors are aware of the risk and um, the reward is even higher. Uh, so everybody's kind of like happy in that, right? Um, so I think this is, this is what matters. And NASA has learned that. Um, and now they're they're trying to uh, to open the space um, in, in, in the sector for for everybody to participate. So I think this is very very massive. This is the first step to, towards eliminating the regulatory environment, right? So, but Canada announcing it, it's great. We need that. Um, but adding different agencies and intermediary uh, parties and the government and and ministries, I think it's it's. That would be also another hurdle that we also need to consider. Um, and, um, and also, they, they just announced today, so we have to see what uh, what are the requirements. Uh, if there are foreign countries, uh, foreign companies also coming, so what are the requirements, what are the restrictions, and so forth. So that, that would be interesting to see. All right. Well, we will have to wait and see what those details are. Zam, always great to talk to you about space travel and what's happening with those developments. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Well, it is time to uh, take a look at some wine as well as some other interesting beverages. And for that, we are joined by Tanya Tomaszewska, a banking lawyer turned wine professional. Tanya, great to chat with you again. 
Hi, Jill. It's a pleasure to be back. Well, it is great having you back. And I mentioned earlier, we are shifting focus a little bit today, talking about all things Mexican, a Mexican wine adventure. And I, I think we don't often equate the two, wine exploring in Mexico, but you're here to tell us that we should be. Absolutely, Joe. Um, I'm actually calling in from Mexico right now. Uh, a lot of Canadians love going to Mexico this time of year or, or generally throughout the year. And it wasn't something that I had explored a lot until about six or seven years ago. You know, Mexico is usually thought of a land of tequila and mezcal or beer when we're thinking about alcoholic beverages. But there's a really exciting beverage, uh, wine scene and wine industry here. In fact, Mexico is the home of North American wine cultivation. It was the first place where grapes were grown to make wine in the Americas. So it's pretty interesting uh, what's going on here now. And so not a new thing then that this is, even though we've maybe not talked about it a lot or paid a lot of attention to it, uh, not something that's really new. No, exactly. So as I mentioned, Mexico has the oldest wine industry in the Americas. Uh, when the Spanish came over in the early 1500s to Mexico, there were indigenous Mexican grapes, grapes we understand, but they brought some grapes from Europe and planted them as early as the 1530s. Uh, Casa Madero, which is the oldest Mexican winery which still runs, actually was established in 1597. Uh, so there's a long, long history of winemaking here. The Jesuit and Dominican missionaries continued the trend um, after uh, some of the Spanish came over. Um, and so wine was made then for, what we'll say, sacramental, <laughs> sacramental purposes. There was a bit of a hiatus uh, during um, 1600s and 1700s. But then again in the 1800s, after the Mexican Revolution, with more immigration from Spain and Italy and other places, people brought their vines here and started to make wine and, and grow grapes for winemaking. This is very similar to what happened at the late 1800s in California, Australia, Argentina, and even here in our own in BC's Okanagan Valley. So there's a, it goes back a long way, but really it wasn't until the 1970s of trade liberalization in Mexico, similar to what happened in BC in the 1980s with some of our trade liberalization with NAFTA, that the modern industry really took off. So it's really kind of in a new, uh, a new, a new stage now, I would say, the developing industry here. Oh, definitely. And and like you said, we often, I think, equate mezcal or tequila or some nice beers in the nice sunshine in Mexico if you're thinking about that vacation. But when we're talking wines, so what kind of wines are the most popular being made in Mexico now? Well, because of the history I just mentioned, there is a whole range and style of mix of different types of grapes, French grapes, Italian grapes, Spanish grapes. So uh, sparkling wine has been very popular here. White wines such as Chardonnay, Verdejo, Sauvignon Blanc, Chenin Blanc um, are popular and have been made. Uh, in terms of reds, Bordeaux varieties like Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon, Malbec, but also things like Nebbiolo, an Italian grape, or Tempranillo, a Spanish grape, or Grenache and Syrah, those are also popular in terms of still dry wines. Um, and they're made in different regions here, um, also in very interesting blends. In terms of, uh, it's still because it's a young industry here, domestically, uh, sweet wines or off-dry wines or sparkling wines have been, um, are very popular. But as the industry develops, 
uh, more of the drier style and more tannic wines are gaining in popularity. So it's interesting to see how the space is developing and where it's going to go domestically. But also um, because of the growth, um, I think Mexican, as I understand it, local domestic consumption of their own wines has gone up as well to support local, kind of like what we've done <laughs> in D.C. So it's quite interesting. It's a mix, bottom line. It's a real mix. Oh, very nice. And, so, and what about the heat? As people know, Mexico is hot. That's what draws a lot of people to travel there and vacation there. How does that play into it? Well, yes, it's hot and it's really dry and it's really arid. So like many places for agriculture and for grape growing, irrigation is pretty much a fact of life. Um, that grapes like arid, uh, dry, um, dry climate, it's not humid and they don't grapes really for wine production don't really like humidity so so it suits them what we there's two kind of different types of climates in mexico that are great for grape growing one is one of the larger regions in baja california is like napa napa of mexico napa valley of mexico so it's close to the pacific ocean it has the breezes it has fog and so that climate and great soils, mixed soil, so that climate there, that pocket in Baja California actually has turned out to be a good spot to grow grapes. And then other regions are elevated and mountainous. So although during the day um, they're very, very hot, in the evenings it cools down. It's quite similar, I think, in some ways to what we have in the South, South Okanagan or even the Sinopean Valley. So really hot days, but cool, cool nights and grapes like that. Um, so it's a mix. Mexico, yes, is very hot. Um, but then these pockets allow some nice grape growing to occur. All right. And where have you been uh, able to taste them, or, or uh, what would you suggest as far as if people are going there, where might be the best spots to go if they want to try out and taste some of the, the Mexican-made wine? Great question. Well, I've been lucky to travel to some of the wine-producing areas as well as do a little bit of wine exploring in wine bars, <laughs> popular <laughs> tourist locations. So uh, if you are traveling into different regions of Mexico, three different parts would be um, Baja, California, so uh, the Guadalupe uh, Valley to Guadalupe, which is just south of the U.S. border, south of San Diego, Tijuana, near Ensenada. This is the major region of Mexican wine making, but also wine travel. There are lots of there are 150 wineries, restaurants, accommodations, festivals. So if you really are uh, a committed wine explorer, you could just go to that region. Um, lots of Canadians like to go to San Miguel de Allende, which is in the center of Mexico, the heart of Mexico, about three hours north of Mexico City. So if you have that on your list to travel to the interior of Mexico, those areas near Queretaro, that, that's the second major wine-producing area. I've, I spent um, some time there a few years ago and absolutely loved it. So if you're finding yourself in the interior of Mexico, there's some fantastic wine exploring there. Um, you know, I think a lot of people from uh, from Vancouver, the West Coast, if they manage to get that time away in the sun to Mexico, many people go to San Jose del Cabo in the Los Cabos area. One of my favorite spots where I first started exploring Mexican wine is at a, a place they're called El Wine Shop. Literally, <laughs> there are a few locations. And it's a great way. It's a fantastic wine bar. They have Mexican wine. They have international wine. You can go sit down and taste a range of Mexican wines. Um, they're very knowledgeable at the bar. You can even just get it an ounce. When I went, I had it ounce by ounce. You didn't need to have full glasses. 
And um, it's fantastic. It's kind of one-stop shop because you can you can go uh, in a nice, very historic area, sit down, and, and try some Mexican wine. So I recommend that for people who are in to get from those Cabos area. All right, that's a good recommendation for sure. Uh, what about uh, if people maybe aren't planning to go to Mexico anytime soon, but they would still like to try this out? Can you buy it in BC? Good question. Sometimes I, uh, some of my homework when I get back is to see if I can find more Mexican wine or where we can find it in BC right now. Um, from time to time, I have seen offerings in some of the private wine stores. Um, it seems to me the BCLS doesn't carry it at the moment. Um, but I also, for anyone who's familiar with the restaurant Ophelia, which is modern Mexican in the Olympic Village area, I think that they have one of the red wines from Mexico on the list right now. Um, in broad terms, it's very limited production. So just for perspective, uh, the amount of acres of, of vines planted in Mexico, I think is at about eight or 9,000. Uh, in British Columbia, we have about 10 or 11,000. So, and I have to check the numbers. The production volumes are probably very similar. So like Canadian wine scene, uh, you know, we have, we know a lot about our, we, we know a lot about our own wines, but our, our own wines don't have huge distribution right now around the globe because we have such a small volume. So I think it's a similar case to Mexican wine. Um, but, you know, for anyone who is interested, if you have your favorite private wine store, perhaps go and ask them, ask them if, um, if they have any to bring in. If I come across any in Vancouver in the next little while, I'll be sure to mention it on one of our next chats, though. <laughs> All right. That sounds great. Tanya, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much and have a great rest of your vacation. Thank you so much and salud, as they say in Mexico. All the best of health. Thanks, sir.